hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of I Know, I Know, a Solo Beatles video cast where we talk all things solo Beatles. Um, my name is Hudson Ranny, and today I am joined by my co-moderator. He is a Beatles broadcasting legend, um, also part of the Ken Mafia. Um, <laughs> he is the one and only Ken Michaels. Hi, Hudson. Good to be with you. Yeah, um, I'm happy to be here. And today we have a very, very special guest, the one and only youth. Youth, how's it going in Spain? Yeah. Hi, Hudson. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hi, Ken. It's all good. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Great. <laughs> so um, to start off, I just want to briefly mention the uh, picture that Paul posted on Instagram and Facebook of him getting vaccinated, spending spreading that important message. As we all know, Ken, you are the news expert of Beatles. Uh huh. Um, I actually, I actually never reported that yet, but I'll use that in my next show. Okay. <laughs> you didn't know about it. I heard about it after the last show that I recorded. Yeah. For for uh, things we said today. Yeah, that was uh, yesterday, I think, and um, yeah, that's about it. And we had the video. Ken, are you wild about that video? The find my way. Uh, I like it a lot. It's uh, it's today's technology. You know, being able to reproduce a 1965 Paul in that video. And I really like the ending, most of all, which I, is a surprise ending, which I never like to reveal <laughs> when I'm talking about it, because uh, I think everyone should just go to it, you know, right now and, and watch it. Well, after this interview. Yeah. Um, <laughs> youth, did you see that video that Paul put out? <laughs> If I haven't seen this, uh, the whole thing. Okay. Um, so getting into the questions, um, Ken, I'll let you start off since you were willing to join me. Okay, why don't we just start by, um, uh, if you could just tell our viewers how this whole thing started with you working with Paul. Was he familiar with your music? Because we know that you played in Killing Joke. Was he familiar with that at all? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, 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 yeah. He actually said that one I, a few days after I first started working with him, he said, yeah, some of my crew say you got a really heavy band. I heard they really they play hard. I was like, oh, cool. Um, mm -hmm. which, which I took as a kind of compliment. <laughs> but uh, I think he was, I'm not sure he was that aware of what, I'd done before really. I, I I think it was because I'd done an interview and in the interview I was name checking him and the Beatles as being the the real pioneers of uh, sample culture and, and cut and paste hip hop culture from you know um rubber soul onwards really. So uh, and uh, and then I got a call from my manager saying, Oh look, you know pick up your phone, Paul McCartney's going to ring you. He wants you to do a remix or something. Mm. Paul rang up and he said, yeah, I like that interview. Cool. Would you like to come and do a remix? I said, yeah, okay. So I went down there and then he said, look, pick a track. He just finished an album and, uh, you know, go to it in, in, in his uh, Hog Hill studios. And, uh, and I said, you know, I'd, what I'd rather do is just 
sample sounds and different elements of the multi-tracks and create a new piece and then maybe get you to overdub a few things to it because all that's different has anyone done that before and i was like i don't think so because yes let's do that because i know he mentioned a few times that the Beatles had a thing about doing things that nobody had done before. And actually with that film that's just come out, you know, he's always on the, ed the cutting edge of technology, you know, with P the Peter Jackson film looks amazing as well, doesn't it? Right. And yeah. uh, even with Linda, with her photography, they were doing things where she was managing to morph stills of, the Grateful Dead together, so it was almost like animation, but it had this sort of like psychedelic quality, and that was like a first as well. So, yeah, I think that's a good uh, that's a good um, star to navigate to as an artist is to do things that no one else has done. Yeah, right. When I think about the first two Fireman albums, it reminds me very much of other things that Paul has done, like a Twin Freaks kind of thing, where you're using original tracks and mixing that with other tracks was, and hmm? well that was kind of straightforward remixing though wasn't it yeah it's definitely in 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 the in the bandwidth of uh experimental for paul you know like right. thrilling to like that it's not it's hmm. not like paul mccartney not the beatles it's not wings you know it's the experimental wing of his right. oeuvre when you, when you put together the tracks for those first two albums, were they were they tracks that you worked on from scratch? Were they all improvisational, for the most part, or was was a lot of it well thought out? None of it was thought out of all, on all three albums, you know. So um, it's always been incredibly spontaneous. The first album, rewinding back to that. I was actually, you know, I sampled up all these different sounds, created, um, you know, one really weighed, weighty piece. And then, then my process then from working with the Orb and other cut-up things as a remixer, remixing dancehall, hip-hop, all sorts of stuff, was to then, in the mixing process, create different versions. Now, when I was mixing the first album, or one of the days I was mixing, Paul came down with um, Linda and the family from a, a, a photo exhibition of Linda's quite late at night. And he said, is it okay if we can hang out while you mix? You know, I said, yeah, sure, of course, you know, totally honoured. <laughs> so they came down, they were quite, you know, buzzing from this exhibition, they had a few glasses of wine and some, I think. And ended up staying till about four in the morning while I was doing all these different mixes. And um, the next day I gave him, a, he said, give me a CD of all those different mixes. And I said, yeah, well, the process is I'll, I'll do all these mixes and I'll kind of edit them down to one mix. He goes, yeah, fine, but just give me a copy of all the CD, all the different ones, which I did. And even the rough mix titles I was using, I mean, a lot of those ended up that and that. And then a couple, two days later, I got a call from my manager saying, oh, Paul wants to put it out as an album. I was like, oh, but, you know, I explained those were just like mixes for editing. And, and he goes, no, no, you don't understand. He wants to put out as an album with you and him as a band. Yeah. Going, at first I was going, no, no, but you don't understand. I'm supposed to, you know, that my intention was to edit. He goes, no, he loves them as they are, you know. <laughs> and that's how he wants to do it. I was like, oh, okay, fine. And so that became the first album. At the time I thought, well, 
I love the spontaneity of that and, and just the bravery, fearlessness of him just wanting to throw him out. And it's so different, that fat. first album is so different. It, it is amazing. And he's playing every pretty much 99% of everything on it he's played. I'm just arranging it and editing it and, you know. Um, and then, um, you know, the second album was a bit more considered. So we spent a bit more time and we've actually had different tracks and things like that, you know. Mm. Um, and then the third album, we actually, it became songs, you know, and it's, it, it is a song-based album. So but it's like 14, 15 songs. So it's like a double album, album you know. But yeah. not only me, the third album, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've got attachments to all of them, especially the second, Rushes. But the third album, I'm, I, yeah, I'm so delighted that when that came out, um, not only did he play a couple of those songs live in, in his arena shows and hmm. and even bookmark next to sort of like maybe I'm amazed and Lady Madonna or something you know it's they still held their weight and and went down really well even I think one of them's in his own personal top 20 of favorite songs he's ever written so you know that delights me and and, uh, you know, the critical response was massive. I mean, Rolling Stone said it was his best album since um, Band on the Run and stuff like that. And I think actually what's lovely about it and what's lovely is with working with Paul as the fireman rather than as Paul McCartney is we can be really experimental. We can do things you'd be very risky to do as a Paul McCartney production. But as a fireman, it's allowed. And it allows him a lot more space to have fun and do things he really would be challenging to do as a Paul McCartney wrote. Nevertheless, that's one of his best Paul McCartney albums. So, you know, I think, I, I personally think it is, and, uh, you know, I think it stands up for sure. So, I mean, that's, that's my favourite in terms of artistic, emotional achievement, you mm. know. Yeah, a lot of his fans point to Electric Arguments as being one of his best. And it's a fascinating thing, like what you were just saying, when Paul wants to do something really experimental, that's not what the general public thinks is your typical Paul McCartney album. He'll go under a different name, like Thrillington, you know, like yeah. The Fireman, that kind yeah. of thing. But Electric Arguments to me is closer to being what a lot of what Paul did on some of his solo albums that was experimental, like Press to Play or um, Driving Rain for that matter. You know, I don't know if you feel that I, I way. No, I wasn't really referencing those records. I was more referencing Wings on that album. Mm. Certainly, you know, Venus and Mars Band on the run, things like that. And if you listen to the guitar arrangements and things like that, there's a lot of Wings. In it. It's interesting now, isn't it, with the context of time, you know, um, you know, Wings wasn't critically acclaimed at the time in the 70s and mm even though that it was a massively successful project and band for him, um, coming off the Beatles, it was bound to be, um, you know, difficult for people to accept as something else, you know. Mm. But 30, 40 years later, Wings is as classic as, uh, as anything up there with the Stones or the Beatles. In fact, when you hear him play them live, you hear like maybe I'm amazed next to, you know, whatever, um, Tomorrow Never Knows or whatever, that, although he doesn't really do that, that would be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Wish he would. Um, 
but it, it's hard in that context. It's hard to tell which one's which. You know, like maybe isn't that a Beatles one? I don't know. Let it be. And you get confused because they're just this canon of like number one songs. You know, mm. and uh, but I think also because he had Linda in the band, and Linda Linda was vilified for being his wife and a woman and non musician in the band. And I thought that was incredibly brave and. Uh, uh, and artistic of him to just do what he the way he wanted to do, and actually getting to know Linda, I realised how how strong a, a powerful and influence she is. She was with him in encouraging him to work and pushing him um, to keep going and being creative and um, and motivating him. You know, um, she was an in, in, incredibly important cog in the wheel there, um, and she was. Um, you know, um, she was vilified in the same, not quite as badly as Yoko was with John, but uh, mm. the, the media and the, and the public, you know, they didn't like them having partners and and, and, and gave them a really hard time, but they did it anyway. And uh, and I just, that that uh, that um, incredible respect from from me seeing how he did that and why, and why and did it, doing it regardless, not playing to the gallery and trying to pander to his fans or something. But those records buy yeah, it all now. Those records sound amazing. Her backing vocals sound amazing. You know, her piano, her electric piano. So it's all really beautiful. In, a, in the way that, you know, John would never have written Imagine without, you know, referencing Yoko's poem for the lyric. Yeah. You know, Paul would never have made uh, Band on the Run and Bowl of Cherries, any of those things, if he hadn't have had Linda there really pushing it, you know. Yeah, oh, I agree with you totally. She was a massive influence on him. And the, the Linda's harmonies are a vital sound of Paul's music in Wings and then after Wings. And like yeah. you said, her keyboard work too. But um, I'll let Hudson talk. We'll bounce back and forth here. Um, so youth, um, first of all, I just want to ask you, um, what is your favorite Wings album? Just that with all those influences, um, what would be your favorite? Well, you know what? I'm a bigger fan of Wings than Paul McCartney's solo. No, I've, there are, I have favorite solo albums as well, but the Wings canon, um, I mean, particularly now, when you listen to it now, it just sounds incredible. Um, and I suppose um, it's a push between Venus and Mars and Band on the Run, really, for me. You know, it's a, probably Band on the Run. I love the the flow of that but then i love the flow of uh, venus and mars into rock star and all that it's fantastic you know an amazing uh ship and production and engineering and, and the songwriting wow yeah i want to go back to your very beginning days as a musician i mean when did you realize i want to work in music i want to do this well, you know what? The first sort of real musical epiphany I had was I was born in 1960. In 1967, my father came home with Sergeant Pepper's under his arm as a vinyl record. And I remember opening it up and pulling out the cardboard, cut-out moustaches, and actually cutting them out, sticking them on my jacket, on my jumper, parading around the village square uh, with them and feeling like that's so cool. And then putting this record on and just being teleported uh, into a completely different world. And 
I just couldn't, I can remember, it was just so mysterious and magical. It was like, you know, being pulled away by the tornado in, in Wizard of Oz or something into another land. And, you know, I just played it over and over and again and became obsessed with it, you know. And um, I, was, I, was only, I was still only seven years old, you know. So that really informed my whole musical trajectory. And, you know, even though I've worked with some incredible artists and amazing musicians, uh, played bass with Kate Bush, I've just produced the, the, the last album for Toots and the Maytals and Uroy and, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm unbelievable artistry and um, I've borne witness to and helped give birth to some incredible records, Bittersweet Symphony. I don't even mentioning the Killing Joke canon, but still my most powerful experiences with music has been predominantly as a fan, starting with Sgt. Peppers and going into my early teens with Bowie and glam rock and then Led Zeppelin and hard rock, ACDC. And then weirdly enough, soul and funk and disco. I mean, I feel really blessed I was born when I was because I caught the 60s. I caught Sergeant Peppers. I was only seven, but I remember that summer of love. I remember the vibe of it. I remember the drinks parties. My my mother was a model. My dad was a bit of a villain. We had these really glamorous drinks parties, and uh, there were no drugs, but there was a lot of flirting and beautiful people, and the Beatles being played. You know that innocence that you when you listen to a Francois Hardy record now, you hear that innocence. There was some outtakes I heard actually the other day of some some Beatle outtakes, and it sounded like um, it sounded like John and Paul would, would were playing a Francois Hardy song and singing in French, but they were taking a piss. It was like a home recording or something. Huh. But again, even through that, it captured this innocence that's gone, long gone. You can't find that innocence anywhere in the world now. So when I put Francois Hardy on, an album on now, I can remember those feelings. It brings those feelings back in rushes and waves for me. Same 70s, I call it the classic rock period. Then I call it the classic disco and funk, um, reggae, Bob Marley, um, and then punk. I was 16 when punk broke. 17, 18, started mm. Killing Joke considered one of the best debut albums ever made. Yeah. Uh, made that a um, And then 10 years later, Acid House, The Orb, The KLF, Complete Revolution, Remix Revolution, Digital Revolution. And then I, and then I got into making classic uh, band production albums like Crowded House and, and uh, James and many others in, uh, and Urban Hills. And now I and and then also working with Paul McCartney, culminating and producing co-producing Pink Floyd's uh, final last album. Uh, it's an incredible journey and 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 time frame to catch uh, on a growing curve for a kid, you know. And uh, I managed to surf that wave pretty well, and uh, really had some amazing experiences uh, along the way because of it. And music has always facilitated that. Music has never let me down. It's always been all about the music. The music never lets you down. If you, if you, if you, someone said to me once, um, 
you know, music is like a demanding mistress. And if you give her the right amount of attention and devotion, she'll show you some rewards. <laughs> but if you start thinking it's you that's giving you those rewards, she'll rub your face in the piss-strewn gutter without looking back. <laughs> and so I've always been very devotional towards music and, and, and the inspiration and the muse and what I do, whether it's making music or writing or poetry or painting. Um, and music has never let me down. So that's, it's, it's my, um, it's my mojo, you know. Beautifully said. I think you should have your own YouTube channel there, youth. <laughs> Pass your wisdom to everybody else. Cause really music, <laughs> I can't imagine a day of my life without music. I couldn't. Yeah. I, and, um, do you think that is there a lot like with the um, electric argument stuff? Um, are there outtakes of those songs at all? Or is it, was it really? Oh, there's probably a few early rough mixes, but you know, we did that album we did so quickly. Interestingly, we, as we just passed the Celtic Festival of Lunasad a day or so ago, uh, Paul liked the idea of us recording on the pagan Celtic festivals of Lunasad, Beltane, Solstice, Equinox. And so Electric Arguments was all recorded uh, three days over each festival over six months. And in those three days, we probably record three or four tracks um, from start to, from, you know, from nothing to finished. And we get one or two a day, an incredible uh, fearless work rate. Um, and we just, I don't know if it was that or that and the techniques we, I was using to navigate were different on that album, but things suddenly really started flying from nothing. And that's, that's no mean achievement when you're working with an artist um, as established as Paul, because when they're that established, they're that high up. Um, if they look down on what they've done before, it's a long way down on it. And then they're looking down on some vast, big mountains, you know, the Beatles. Mm. And, and the, the thought of actually trying to do something fresh on the blank page today that could come anything near that is just terrifying and futile in a way and and that that is that it's that fear that kills most of those artists creativity they don't find the courage to go beyond that and that's why a lot of artists who are that established in those later years don't make good records you know dylan does few people do i mean the thing is as soon as you start drawing on that page those fears go away but artists are very good at um not only avoiding doing that, but self-sabotaging it when it does happen for themselves and the work. And uh, they can, can be very clever at that, especially established ones, because it's terrifying. You know, I spent like a, a, a good chunk of time working with Axl Rose on Chinese democracy. I mean, that ended up taking 10 years out. <laughs> you know, I mean, most of that was, you know, very cleverly constructed avoidance techniques, you know. Um, Whereas with Paul, I mean, even though he's one of the handful of the biggest artists in the world, he possibly because of why he's one of those biggest artists, because he really just threw himself in. 
But I did make it the whole process a lot more fun and engaging and kind of artistic. And it wasn't just like, okay, go and write a lyric. We we were doing lots of uh, Ginsberg and Burroughs cut-up techniques and referencing loads of things. I was getting in every morning referencing lots of, from English folk rock to uh, German electronics, psychedelic music of the 70s, preparing kind of little sound beds, jam vibes. Um, I'd get in about 9am and start doing that. And he'd come down about 11 and then I'd say, okay, here's a few ideas I've got going. Why don't we pick one, you know, um, what you, which one talks to you? And we just start from there and carry on, you know. Um, and it, it just went super fast and super good flow. flow. But I must admit, it's just me and him in there. So, and my engineer and some of his engineers. So the more musicians and artists you've got, the slower it goes. So when it's just me and him, it was super fast. And then he could just become this sort of a human jukebox for me, I could say. Oh, let's try a sort of Beach Boys style uh, electric piano or get on mm. the drum and give us a Phil Spector beat or, you know, give us some Baroque harpsichord on this. And, you know, he, he was, and he just, I think he, we really enjoyed it. It was a really good flowing process. There was no, um, there was no time for any blocks or um, awkward, you know, silences. It was just pure flow. And the music just poured out of them and those songs are just, wow. And the great thing when you work like that is, you get to the end of the three days and listen back to what you did on day one. You're like, what's that? You can't even remember writing it or recording it. You know, yeah. they're just like out of the air, fully formed or something. It's really magical, beautiful. Yeah, you know, that's the thing about Paul is that he's always looking for different ways to record. And in this particular instance, when you're you're working on a song from scratch, you know, that's got to be such an exhilarating experience to see it take shape, you know, all in one day, as opposed to Paul coming into the studio, I've got this whole song written out, what can yeah. you do with it? So yeah. can you can you go through the process of just pick any song that you want and just uh, tell us what it was like to see this song take shape all in one day? Yeah, well, you know, Paul, Paul like a lot of, uh, you know, major artists, well, have the pick of the best producers, the best engineers, the best labels, the best managers in the world, best agents to create his art with, mm. right? So, like on his last few solo albums, he's had quite a few producers in, which is the current vogue of things. Um, you know, uh, you might have six producers credited on one Taylor Swift track these days, you know. Mm. Um, and, you know, and, and he's... Uh, but then, you know, he has the pressure of having to write the songs. Sometimes he'll get a writing collaborator, very rarely. I think it's only Elvis Costello is, uh, and a couple of others he's done that with. Hmm. Well, otherwise, just him writing the songs um, and, and then presenting them to the producer and the producer helping record and arrange them, you know. Um, and that could be Mark Ronson or you know, any number of top producers. Um, Greg Kirsten. But, yeah, yeah, but that's right. Um, you know, some are a bit more middle of the road, some are a bit more edgy, you know. Mm. But um, the pressure for those producers going in on that 
session is incredible. I mean, mm. you, cannot, you cannot imagine. And the pressure for Paul to go behind the other side of the glass with a big producer like that, looking at him going, go on and show us what you got. I mean, Nigel, Nigel Godrich is a good friend of mine, he's a flaming pie, and we, he was asking me some tips before he went in to do that. And I said, look, the hardest part is getting the songs up there. You know, and the song caliber has to be incredibly high for Paul because of who he is. Mm. But how you tell Paul McCartney that song isn't quite cutting it, it's a, it's a really, uh, you know, uh, rarefied art. Mm -hmm. um, George Martin put it down to sort of tact and diplomacy, um, which is a really good way of putting it. Um, right. But producers aren't really known for being tactful or you know, a lot of them, especially the engineer ones like Nigel, they, they're usually blunt and brutal. Mm. And that's a way of being tactful, you know. And um, not many artists can cope with that sometimes. So I mean, once you've got a very strong rapport going with the artist, you can go there. But initially, you've got to use a bit of tact and diplomacy. Otherwise, they just walk out, you know. And, uh, and uh, and it's incredibly difficult to engage and engender that trust where they'll allow themselves to be that naked and vulnerable in, in the room with you to be able to begin the process of mm. creating. So, you know, that is a whole book's worth of conversation of how, 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 how the techniques of the things that make that work or not with an artist for me. Um, but like I said earlier, like with, to answer your question, with Paul, I, I present a, a, a series of sound palettes. Now, I was funny. I was doing another podcast a couple of days ago about just about electric arguments. Um, I don't know if you heard the podcast that the author John Higgs did about rushes. No, um, I haven't. It's a very famous one and it went down incredibly well. I got millions of hits and it's an amazing account. And uh, and actually put that album into a very mythical place for me, which is amazing because it's uh, still an experimental album. But through the lens of John Higgs, it's uh, an incredible experience. He's just got a new bestseller book on um, uh, on Blake out, on William Blake, the, hmm. the mystery. So, um, so it was the same podcast people who'd done that that I did the electric arguments one for, and I was saying to them, what was interesting with that was actually, I mean, I, 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 it's good because it was a few days ago now, but it's still fresh. I hadn't listened to electric arguments for about five years, I don't think at least. So I listened to it to brief myself of it the interview and I uh, was amazed at the quantity and quality of songs on that album as I listened through and and then we started to unpack them uh, song by song and I realised and they brought back a kind of flood of memories of where what I was listening to, what, what the influences were that I was presenting to Paul as like sound collage plates or something where we'd start off I might reference uh, Sandy Denny's song or um, uh, Fairport Convention or something, and doing a fairly traditional kind of. Well, a, a good a good example is like nothing too much, right? Which is like mm -hmm. a little rock. Now, right. one oh, we've been talking. I mean, it's really dynamic. Camera it goes from that to sort of 
two magpies with absolutely acoustic and um you know traveling home that one uh, i mean those are really intimate songs um but on nothing too much it was i've been listening to beatles i don't i rarely reference the beatles when i was working with paul with the farmer but i'd reference his influences a lot mm. and Beatles is a lot i thought i'd be too close and get too karaoke if i get got but wings was fine for some reason Huh. Maybe because not so many people have referenced Wings quite so much as people have referenced the Beatles, but right. um, not that he's not allowed to self-reference. If anyone's allowed to do that, he is, you know. But I did hmm. think it's totally fair that I could be referencing other folk, well, specifically directly referencing other things and presenting these sort of new vibes to him, different chord progressions and stuff. And then he'd fly off on them. And so nothing too much actually started from a folk com, uh, record that was I referenced. And I was I was creating a little sound bed inspired thing from that of a Fairport track or something. And but then I suddenly thought, actually, that riff would sound evil if he did it on a slide guitar as a blues riff. And then I thought, well, actually, if I add another bar, sometimes when you're doing blues, it can get very cod and cabaret you know easily like a 12 bar blues cliche you know um and the one, one way around that is to add another beat to the bar so you make it instead of four four it's five four and then suddenly that turns that riff around a lot and a lot of blues guys did that song house um muddy water sometimes um and that extra beat just a lot of country blues uh our boys and people like that they their, their timing is all weird. It's not 12 bars, you know, it might be six, seven, and then 12, and then 10, and two. Yeah. Like Dylan, the musicians just have to watch, follow the hands, you know, then psychically tune in. But if you add that extra bar, you suddenly get a really cool, unique riff, and it doesn't sound cliche. So we did that. And then, you know, and I, I've been reading about when they recorded How to Skelter, that morning, Paul had told me that, um, or the day before, that he'd read on the way into the studio that the Who had made the loudest rock record. Mm -hmm. And he was like, fuck you, I'll do one even louder. And that was House of Skelt. And of right. course, with Paul, people don't always see or appreciate him as the big rocker type. They think of him as the nice guy singing Blackbird or something, you know, mm. uh, of Kintar or something, you know. But he's one of the fiercest rockers there's ever been, you know, and he can do a great little rich and he can do, you know, he's a rocker as, as, as John can be both as well. They both can be both. That's amazing, isn't it? Mm. But, um, so the idea was let's do it like an out and out sort of like Jack White, filthy blues rocker, you know? Uh, and so that, and that's how that came about. Yeah. You know? Um, that's very quick. Yeah. Really interesting. When I hear that song, I think of that helter skelter voice, or, or Monkberry Moon Delight, songs like yeah. those where he's, he's got the edgiest vocals, <laughs> you know, and he is one of the greatest rock singers and those who have really studied his entire catalog are aware of that. Yeah, yeah. And he's got the duende. He can like tap in deep and and this like scary character comes out, you know, and it's like, and he, get, he got that vocal in like two takes, I think, one, it was only one or two takes. Amazing. Amazing. And then, 
then we then we might I might go well, maybe let's put a put a hook and he'll do the na 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 we might track that up a bit but I mean that was done and the whole thing was cut in three hours or something and I'd arrange it he'd be working on the lyric on the next one you know so fresh so fresh so spontaneous and you can hear that in the records records don't lie you know they are what they are it sounds over considered and pedantic and it it, it, it is because it's because that's how it was made. You know, mm. <laughs> but if it sounds raw and visceral and, you know, then it, it doesn't lie. It is what it is, you know. Mm. You know, if you look at the first two Fireman albums, the credits read that the songs were written by the Fireman. And if you look at the last album, Electric Arguments, it says that they were written by Paul McCartney. So do you look yeah. at these songs as being really songwriting collaborations or does it have to be that you contributed to the lyrics or the melody for you to be a songwriter because you're contributing in your own way through inspiration, wherever it's drawn from, whatever ideas you bring to the table before Paul adds his stuff is, do you look at it as a songwriting collaboration or you are more the producer and arranger for, for his ideas? It's all those things. I mean, you know, he entrusted me as a collaborator to do whatever I wanted, so I, I took that remit uh, seriously. And but it's still his record. Um, mm-hmm. Whether credited to Paul McCartney or the Farmer, it, it's Paul. You know, it's all Paul. And uh, as far as I, even though I'm collaborating and I'm helping sometimes with the lyric suggestions or or process or or chord structure or arrangement or, or direct overall direction, um, it's all through the lens of Paul McCartney. Not necessarily mm-hmm. Paul McCartney. If I was thinking of this as a Paul McCartney, a youth record, it would be very, very different. But this is a fireman record, which is essentially me and Paul through the lens of Paul. It's, it's like Led Zeppelin is Jimmy Page, right? <laughs> it's four members of Led Zeppelin, but it's a it's a Jimmy Page record, you know? Uh, and it always will be, you know, because it's his band, that's his gig. And same with the farm, it's Paul's gig, it's his band. I respect that. And 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 uh, I'll work um, in the context of that, you know. But nevertheless, it's not a Paul McCartney record, it's a Feynman record. Right. So that gives me a much wider spectrum of possibilities immediately, you know. Um, but it's all through my, my lens is focused through it being a Paul McCartney record. I don't, <clears throat> clearly I'm really involved in it and on many, many levels. But when you listen back to it, when I listen back to it, it's still a Paul McCartney record, you know. Um, it's not a Paul McCartney and youth record. Even if it is, it's a Paul McCartney record. You know, if that answers your question. <laughs> you know, it, you talk to fans and it's a very complicated thing. To some people, yeah. like myself, I look at, Beatles, Wings, Solo, McCartney, Fireman is all one body of work. But you can easily break it down and say, well, a Paul McCartney album is not the same thing as a Wings album, is not the same thing as a Beatles album. So it's all in the way that you look at it, really. When you see it live in context to a live show, it's just Paul McCartney. Right. Yeah, yeah. And it's all Paul McCartney. I mean, it's like when I'm working with David Gilmore with Pink Floyd, it's not, I'm not going to be like, oh, have I got my bit in there? You know, it might be insignificant. It's about them. 
my bit is there to facilitate them yeah to stop you know and but in the end it does become an account collaboration you can see elements of what i do but from my intention and context it's about it's all about that yeah. mm. okay um, youth uh just because one of my good friends and one of Ken's friends, Darren DeVivo, was a big Pink Floyd fan um, and unfortunately a Mets fan. Uh, <laughs> so am I, Hudson. I know. Um, <laughs> I, I had to throw that in there. But um, how did you get involved with Pink Floyd, working with Pink Floyd? Yeah, I got a call from David. Um, inviting me to come down to his barn in Sussex and listen to some music, which I'd, uh, I'd assumed was going to be some solo work. And I went down there, it was a glorious summer's day, and picked me up from the train station in a soft-top, super-fast, funky Mercedes sports car, drove really fast down these country lanes to his country lair, and he had a barn set up with us, uh, a home studio set up above the barn, which is just idyllic and little swifts and swallows flying in through the windows, nesting inside and, and uh, some fairly lo-fi setup, but some serious equipment nevertheless. Then it, it allowed him to basically record a lot of things on his own um, on Pro Tools in that setup without a team, which I think it was the first time he'd ever been able to do that. He really enjoyed it. So um, anyway, he started playing me some, some music and I was like, I said, oh, this sounds like Pink Floyd. He goes, yeah, yeah, duh. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and that's when I realised he was playing, playing me actually a Pink Floyd record and not a David Solo album. And uh, yeah, and then he discussed about whether I'd be up for co-producing it with Phil Manzanero and himself. He'd already spent two or three years on it. And they got a little stuck with it. And if I'd come in and give it a, a bit of a, an arrangement perspective and su suggestions. And, and I, I, I was delighted to accept it. And I took it, uh, I took it away. I took it back here to Spain where I am now. It's my studio here. And, Spent, spent. Funnily enough, he, they, it, the album's like four tracks that are each ten minutes long, and what he gave me when I went away was one one track, which was like ten minutes. But there were about four or five different movements in that one track, and I actually spent a month turning that into a forty-piece, forty-minute album in a, in the arrangements, and I, I, you know, and, and adding suggestive elements of. Um, guitars and bass or whatever, and drums. And uh, then I took it back to David and he was like, wow, that's amazing. That was only the first track. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I was like, oh, but that's actually quite Pink Floyd in a way, uh, turn one track into at least half a side of the album. Um, and interestingly, we ended up keeping a lot of those elements from that first 40 minute draft I did. And then I went through the other three elements, but, um, and then we spent uh, a lot of time uh, overdubbing um, to these new arrangements, real drums, uh, replacing my guitars with David's and basses with um, Guy or David or whoever. 
Um, a lot of, and of course, that whole, that whole album was really a homage to um, Rick Wright, who died. And there were outtakes from a Delicate Sound of Thunder album and, uh, and, and, and outtakes for Momentary Lapse of Reason and things like that um, that hadn't been heard. I actually, we'd actually found one of the engineers at the Astoria Studios, the Floyd's, uh, David's amazing boat studio, that being Charlie Champlin's manager's uh, sort of gin palace in Richmond. Um, we found a tape of Rick playing organ at the Albert Hall on a soundtrack, on a sound check. And we ended up, uh, I ended up editing about five minutes of that out of a 20 minute recording. I think he was playing a, a, a symphony he was writing. Um, um, we turned that into a track, like a completely new track. And then, and then, then we went to David's studio in Brighton and overdubbed um, Nick doing the drums and new drums and David doing new guitars, Guy Pratt playing, replacing some of his original bass from those 90s jam sessions with um, with with bass that was more, um, let's say, Roger Waters inspired rather than, you know, when Guy was in the band in the 90s, he was actually playing a lot of slap and funk and reggae and stuff. Mm. And we kind of went back to that classic vintage Floyd, um, you know, Roger playing with a pick. And actually David had Roger's original precision, I think from Dark Side of the Moon still in the studio with a bit of foam to mute it. So Guy, yeah, that was that was a challenge because Guy, Guy hates playing with picks and actually threw the pick down and he said, I'm not going to play with a pick because I'm a musician and I want to play like me. <laughs> and David looked at me and I looked at him and I looked at Guy and I thought, oh, fuck, you know. And David said, okay, do it the way you want to do it. And I thought, I'd better take a back seat here. Because I went to school with Guy. I've known Guy since I was 12. And, you know, Pink Floyd's normally his gig, you know. So I had to tiptoe around uh, a few, uh, you know, sort of, I was a new boy. So I sort of stepped back and David let Guy do a, a take with his fingers. And I think about two minutes in, David said, uh, Guy, uh, maybe try it with a pick. And Guy went, yes, of course, do. And I just did it. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> but um, I think it was really about, um, you know, when David's brief to me on that album was uh, really, uh, that really haunted me and rang true was make it sound like us. Because when the original jam tapes and stuff, it didn't actually sound like that much. It weirdly sounded like the Orbalock because they were using loops and it was the early 90s. And so I had to take it away from that and make it sound more vintage 70s Floyd, um, mm. which I think I did quite well. And between us, I um, made quite a really beautiful record. So yeah, very happy with that. Very nice. We've got to get you in, in touch with Darren DeVivo. Yeah. He'll just be absorbing all this, like, you know, he'll be in space for a while. <laughs> um, the one last question that I will ask you is, um, is there going to be another Fireman or album? Mm. Well, it's a good question. There's generally a 10-year gap between them. So, I mean, we're due one. Um, 
And of course, I'm always open to it. So um, who knows? Actually, I thought his last lockdown album, Three, had a lot of fireman feelings to it. I agree. Yeah. I heard um, a lot of right from there. Yeah, I was really pleased to hear that and him doing it on his own. Um, I thought, oh, he's, he's doing a fireman on his own. And that was great to hear. And there were some great songs in it. I thought it was a great album. Um, and, and I thought, again, with, with the marketing of trying, with the reimagined version, getting people to do covers of it instead of remixes is a new way of, it's again, doing something different. Though again, I didn't think they sounded anywhere near as good as his original version. So that made him look good as well. Mm. And what was your take on that? Uh, the, the McCartney 3 Imagined? Yeah. I like it a lot. You know, it's a combination of doing complete covers or taking the multi-tracks and building around it, like with Find My Way with Beck. Mm. Or... Um, Phoebe Bridgers doing her own version of Seize the Day, which isn't too different from Paul's, really. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I like what was done with Pretty Boys in particular. Mm. That's that's kind of similar to, you know, lifting lines from the song with Paul's vocal and then adding completely new backing tracks to it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, know, I thought it was artistic. I thought it was good. But I still prefer the his original cast. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, it's nice. It's kind of like, you know, there's a lot of cover versions of Beatles songs that I love through the years, oh, yeah. but, but yeah. I'll always say I love the Beatles recordings best of course, of their own of songs. So it's, it's yeah. kind of the same thing. Can mm -hmm. I ask a few last questions here? Because I wanted to just bring up the Rush's album and mm. um, Oraveda is a track that I like a lot and it's got uh -huh. all these Indian instruments in it. And yeah. I'm wondering if that were they all real Indian instruments or was it all synthesized or or um, sampled or what? No, they're all real. Um, Paul's got tablets, uh, sitars, um, all sorts. Yeah, um, we were bowing Bill Black's bass for a drone, and uh, you know, um, yeah, it was uh, kids in the toy shop really. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, you can take something like I, I, I think it's a tambora. And get a drone sound out of that, but he used the bass instead. Yeah, well, we used to yell both often. You know, um, we did that on Electric Arguments as well. Traveling Light, I think he's bowing the double bass on that. Um, mm. And uh, and that was interesting, getting him to sort of sing low, like in a joint. I, my vibe on that was like. Let's do this one like if it was Johnny Cash singing it, you know. Both Paul and David Gilmore are great to direct because I could go to David, oh, you know, do you like Hank Marvin? And he goes, do I like Hank Marvin? And Paul would strap play me a patch. I'm like, whoom. And then I go, okay, let's do an overdub as like if you were doing it as Hank Marvin. And go, yeah, give it him. And he'd do this amazing thing. And then I might say for the next take, I might go, okay, maybe let's try one with the Les Paul and a warmer tone and, and go more Peter Green. And he go, oh, I love Peter Green, you know. And so, you, like, you know, for me, like, like I was saying earlier, you know, my, my peak experiences and often some great, great musicians that I've worked with and artists, um, they're bigger fans than they are artists, you know. Um, and... If you appeal to the fan in them, you, you're, going, you're going back to the being kids again, and it's much—it's—it's it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, 
and uh, so you know, I might, I, I think that suggested I maybe sing this one as if it was like a Johnny Cash, you know, singing Lord, um, and so and it came out great, and I've never heard him sing like that, and it started again a bit like a human jukebox, you know, and yeah. I go, try a, you know. A, you know, fans want a piano on this horse. You know, anything you can imagine, he can do it. An incredible musician. And, mm-hmm. and, and more importantly, not afraid to be a fan and play it. You know, w- w- rather than, oh, I have to go and be me and write this and work this solo out. Exactly. I mean, you, you know, and we are, you know, reading interviews with Jimmy Page and stuff as well. When he got to do his solos on, Stairway to Heaven and stuff. They were like, they weren't prepared. They were like spontaneous takes, and you'd have to do them at the end of the album, and he'd just like knock them out. Yeah. And I'd like a big part of it for me with production is I want to hear the struggle. I want to hear them reach hard, like really difficult to get that duende to realise that manifest that world spirit that they're tapping into. You know, mm. I want to hear that. I don't want to. I don't want that to be too ironed out and you know the, uh, those albums the electric arguments especially you can really hear that you can really see the dirt under the nails of it and and that gives me you know goosebumps yeah yeah one of the things that i love most about electric arguments is that you got so many different types of vocals coming from paul like nothing too much that screaming voice yeah. And yeah. then, the, you know, doing an acoustic song like Two Magpies. I love when he reaches high and like dance till we're high, for example, yeah. 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 or, or yeah. sing the changes or, or one of those songs. But I, I think you were referring to when you were talking about Johnny Cash, a Johnny Cash vocal. There's Light from Your Lighthouse, which yeah. is oh, yeah. really he's singing low and he's singing falsetto at the same time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And when we were doing that, it was like, which one's going to be the lead? And I said, I'm not sure. Let's just see. They ended up the baritone, I think, is more the lead in a way. But I don't know. It's a, it's a really great technique, isn't it? I love that. He could do so many things with his voice. Yeah, and, yeah. Um... But it's you know, like I was saying, but you know, to be given a Paul McCartney solo gig, it's so hard to maneuver anything outside of that concrete sort of perception of what that is to be able to create things that like that happening you know um it, it would be very it, it is very hard and you can you can almost feel the tension and pressure of that in the solo album sometimes you know not just from him but from the musicians and the, the production and what i love about um electric arguments is it's so um so fluid you know mm. okay here we go all right um, I've got some, yeah so I've got some uh, house guests here so we've got to wrap it up now uh, okay so thank you so much youth um, take care yeah you're welcome to- this has been great thanks well, for doing this was that good for you guys yeah thank you sure. so much right well please send me the links and uh, I'll share them and um yeah, if you know anyone else who's who's doing this sort of thing and find what I what I've got to say interesting, you know, don't hesitate and recommend to me. Thank you. I'm on two podcasts of my own and my own YouTube channel. You could be on all of them. You can take uh, over if you want. Uh, great. This has been delightful. Thank you so much. All right, pleasure. Cheers, guys.